My name is Noah Slager. I'm Grace Haven. And what we're doing today is talking about the contemporary political themes of Bhagavad Gita. This is something that was not actually in the traditional CC syllabus that, that was added in for our class. And it was a text that we were both drawn to. We both independently decided that we wanted to talk about it. Grace is going to tell us a little bit about what this text is. Yeah, so the Bhagavad Gita can be translated as the Song of God, um, and it also is often referred to as the Gita, and it's part of the epic Mahabharata, which is a Hindu epic dated back to the 2nd century BCE. And the central conflict within the Bhagavad Gita is there's a prince named Arjuna, and he is expected to lead his tribe in battle against another tribe, and Arjuna expresses hesitation. He looks out at the people he's supposed to fight and he sees his, his brothers, his teachers, his family. And he says, I can't possibly be expected to fight these people. And Krishna comes to Arjuna and tells him that it is his responsibility to fight. And Krishna essentially throughout the Bhagavad Gita explains to Arjuna that it is his dharma or his destiny to lead his troops and to fight in this battle and that he doesn't really have a choice in the matter. So we both came from this text with a couple of questions, a couple of curiosities. And the one thing that I was thinking about is sort of the theme of violence and nonviolence throughout this story. As Noah was talking about, the entire narrative is framed within a war. Arjuna says at one point, Krishna, I see my kinsmen gathered here wanting war. I see omens of chaos, Krishna. I see no good in killing my kinsmen in battle. And yet at the same time, while Krishna tells him that it is duty to, to fight the war, he also tells him that nonviolence or ahisma is a very important tenet of Hinduism. So another concern that we had when reading this text is about agency and free will. The argument that Krishna makes to Arjuna concerns what's called his dharma, that is his purpose to fight in this war, that he was born into this role, that he never really had a choice. So one could think when reading this text that the implication that you should draw from this is that an individual does not have the capacity to make decisions for themselves, that it is instead their responsibility to defer to a higher power and to make those decisions for them, and that their agency is removed from the decision-making process. So we really wanted to delve deeper into these questions. So after some research, we spoke to Dr. Arundhati Sanyal from Seton Hall University. Dr. Sanyal, could you introduce yourself and just talk a little bit about what your experience is with the Bhagavad Gita? Absolutely. I teach in the English department at Seton Hall University. Um, and so I teach both Victorian classes as well as a, a large range of general classes. And what we have at Seton Hall, a university core. So Seton Hall is a Catholic university, as you know. And uh, every student who comes in has to take three of the uh, university core classes as a requirement. The Bhagavad is taught in the first of these as one of the principal texts as part of a introduction to world religion. I've been teaching it for the last, I want to say, 18 years. So I was wondering also sort of what your own personal experience um, with the Bhagavad Gita was, like your first time reading it or your first impressions. So, I'm a practicing Hindu. Um, so for me, the Gita is, uh, you know, uh, pretty much the text. Um, and to be very honest, 
I did not pay much attention to it until I actually began to teach it. Um, and then, you know, I had taken a lot of it for granted, really, until, um, you know, I began to study it in the hopes of teaching it to my students who were not Hindus. Clearly, they were, you know, mostly um, Catholics, um, Caucasian. I want to say 5% of my students so far have read or heard of the Gita you know, my teaching of this is the first exposure uh, that these students have to the text. Um, in fact, to any text outside of the Bible, I had to come to terms with it myself uh, before I could, you know, create some kind of a narrative for my students. The whole idea is uh, for you to recognize that God lies within you. So the entire apparatus of uh, the war, all right, righteous war, whatever, is, is any war. You know, it's the war that we are fighting right now with COVID. It's the war that I, as a woman in the 21st century, fight in order to establish my identity. It is the war that an African-American student of mine fights every day in order to, you know, say who they are and, you know, their place in, in this society, which is mm -hmm. deeply, deeply um, in jeopardy, deeply in, in question, right? It's a war for, you know, in that sense. So it's a metaphor. Um, you know, that's, that's the long answer to your short question. In our research, we found intellectuals and activists who took the Gita in very different directions. For example, there was Oppenheimer who used this text as a justification for the atomic bomb. But there was also Gandhi who drew his idea of nonviolence from the Gita. So how do you sort of reconcile the idea that people can look at this text and take what seem like their opposite interpretations of it away? So Gandhi brings the Gita out of the medieval times into modern India as he is conceiving of the um, struggle for independence, okay? He really um, um, takes the idea of a crisis, the idea, you know, where um, Arjuna, who represents all humans, um, is faced with his, you know, the most, uh, you know, his, his deepest crisis. And he is confronting God and saying, so what am I going to do? All right. Um, and Gandhi takes that and says, all right, this is India in crisis. This is 200 years of British rule. Um, bottom line is we are in crisis. What is our action. What do we have to do? We have no army. We have no uh, means of, um, you know, recruiting um, any, any of the powers um, who can help us out. Britain is the only power. What do we do? Um, and so he, again, um, he, he borrows from the Gita the idea of look inwards, look within yourself. This is, this is the huge 
uh, notion. How do you respond? You respond uh, not physically. So, so ahimsa, the, the notion of uh, nonviolence is deeply, and, and he has said this in, in very many um, texts, um, is deeply, it's not non-engagement. It is absolute, active, powerful engagement, except you are desisting. You are not physically responding. There is no immediate reaction. There is no immediate result. What do we, what happens when, when, you know, someone hits me and I hit back? There is an immediate uh, pleasure that I find in, um, you know, in striking back. I am denying that pre pleasure to myself, all right? Because I'm saying there's a deeper reason why I have acted without reacting. So this idea, he borrows, you know, lock, stock, barrel from the Gita. You know, he has been vilified in, in present day India as someone who was weak, who gave in to the British, who, um, you know, who appeased rather than, you know, uh, stand, stand up to the British. He appeased, uh, uh, you know, the British powers. Wrong, wrong, wrong. He, he provided a, a kind of, um, you know, a, an inner, um, a, a rationale for an inner strength, which he drew from the idea of the Gita, from, from the concept of uh, ahimsa or the concept of karma uh, in, in Gita. Um, so there's a quote from Gandhi that I pulled where he says, he who has voluntarily made himself God's prisoner does nothing himself. His body mechanically acts. The doer is God, not he. He has reduced himself to nothingness. How do you feel about the idea that this text is sort of about like reducing an individual's agency in their own decisions? Actually, it is engaging the agency, I want to say, uh, you know, common people, people who, um, you know, who did not, uh, you know, who had no sophisticated education, they understood this as um, a way for them to, you know, this, this incredible discipline that you need in the face of oppression, um, you know, crass physical repression, all kinds of, uh, you know, uh, authoritarian, uh, you know, the, the whole apparatus of the British colonial, uh, you know, uh, authority. Um, to be able to stand up uh, because they understood that they were, you know, instead of losing agency, they were actually taking control of um, their lives. They were taking control of their um, destiny. So I, you know, um, I would say that this giving up of self is really a taking control of the, in this, there is a different kind of volition um, that you um, accept when you give up this, um, you know, uh, quote unquote agency. So, um, you know, people, this, this resulted, and I want to uh, be very specific, I'm kind of um, taking Indian history post 
um, Gandhi now, this resulted in, um, you know, uh, in, in a large scale um, revision of Indian society, Indian indigenous society, the ability to look at themselves and say, this is who I am. Um, so women's education, uh, minority education, the ability to seek, um, you know, the, the ability to voice, um, you know, India was deeply caste-ridden um, in, 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 at this moment. And, and the ability to stand up and say, you know, this is um, something that we as an individual, not, you know, in my caste-based identity, but as an individual, I can stand up and say, you know, the Gita is for me. Um, the teachings of Krishna are for me. You know, it doesn't matter if I am quote unquote, an untouchable, a Dalit or whatever, you know. So I want to say that deeply, deeply, um, this was, this resulted in agency. It, it you know, that, that's contradictory, but it kind of gave agency. Um, so I want to redefine that by saying, you know, it internalized a, a certain understanding of self rather than, you know, uh, forcing the self to be defined by external circumstances, external, you know, social, um, uh, uh, communal circumstances. Finally, I asked Dr. Sanyal how the Gita could be understood by someone who isn't spiritual or religious. She noted that when it was originally written in the Vedic times, life could not be conceptualized without the understanding of a larger spiritual being. However, then she said that the Gita talks about action in ways that are not necessarily specified in religious terms. The Gita curiously frees us from any specific ism because it allows us to, um, you know, to look at the self um, in, in a very dispassionate, objective way um, and in a non-judgmental way. Um, and it, it really frees us from, um, you know, those accoutrements which we have added on to our material existence. And among them could be, you know, ritualized religion or, you know, caste, class, what, whatever, you know, it, it really frees us, I think, from, from those, you know, add-ons. To that end, I think it speaks to an agnostic or even someone who's atheist. We both really enjoyed our interview with Dr. Sanyal, and I think she presented us with ideas that helped us shape our perspectives about the Gita and how it relates to our world currently. For me, I think Dr. Sanyal made a very powerful point about the idea of nonviolence that is presented in the Gita. She spoke of ahimsa as engagement, but not physical engagement, rather engagement within yourself. And this idea of finding strength within yourself that has the potential to be more powerful than any form of physical violence really struck a chord with me. And I think it is so applicable to many 
modern political movements that are often concerned with finding power within an identity and within a community rather than um, finding literal physical power. Furthermore, our interview really helped me see the potence these ideas can have even in a secular sense. Although Dr. Sonyal noted that the Bhagavad Gita is of course inherently religious and was written at a time when these ideas could not be separated from religion, she also offered a modern interpretation of the Gita as a text that frees its readers from any isms. And she discussed the Gita as promoting action in a way that isn't explicitly religious or tied to any of life's accoutrements, such as religion. And this really helped me connect this text personally to my own secular beliefs about the importance of action and nonviolence. No, what about you? What did you think after our interview? Yeah, so initially, just to refresh, my problem with this text was this sort of agency problem. I felt like it was taking away people's ability to make decisions for themselves. And I think Dr. Sanyal had some really interesting things to say about that. So for millions of indigenous Indian people living under British colonial rule, this text did really the opposite of taking away their agency in that it empowered them. Something that she said earlier in the, our interview is that the real point of this text is, is that God lies within you. And if you're someone who's a sort of a colonial subject, that's really revelatory because it allows you to define yourself by yourself as opposed to by some, some sort of external circumstance. So W.E.B. Du Bois talks about double consciousness, this idea that oppressed or colonized people see themselves both through their own eyes and through the eyes of the person who's oppressing and colonizing them. And that the sort of tension between these two ideas can be very difficult for these people to reconcile. And this is surely something that is experienced by people living in India at the time when Britain was colonizing it. And what the, what the Gita offers them is a way out of this, a desire to seize control of one's destiny rather than allow it to be defined by a colonial oppressor, because God doesn't lie in the government that's colonizing you, it lies within you. We also were talking about some of the more concrete effects of this. So this meant, you know, the, the widespread desire for education reform, uh, for, for educating more women and minority people within India, and eventually to a desire to end British colonial rule. So the Bhagavad Gita becomes then not a text that takes people's agency away, but rather a framework that allows people to conceptualize themselves as free. And I thought that was something really powerful that she told us. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think what was really amazing about this whole project is to see how sort of continuously applicable this text is to both modern political movements and modern feelings about identity, but also sort of our own personal beliefs about these issues. Yeah. And to bring it back to Dr. Sanyal's point, I think one of the things that was most important was when she spoke about, you know, don't conceptualize the war within the Bhagavad Gita as, you know, a war strictly, but as in two people fighting or two groups fighting. This war is, you know, anytime there is a political struggle. So she, she spoke about her struggles, a woman, she spoke about her African-American student struggles every day to just be recognized in the classroom. I think that's really the most powerful thing that this text has to share with us is, you know, everyone is involved in these, you know, these tiny wars every single day. And this revelation, this idea that God lies within us is, is something very powerful that I think everyone can, can take away from this text. Well, thank you all for listening and we hope you enjoyed our podcast.